appreciate that, <laughs> Elder. Man, good morning. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm on repeat a lot because I always get up here and like, I even write this out often and it's always true, but I always write, I'm really excited about what God has to say today. And, and, and today, and I didn't write it today because yesterday as I'm typing this out, I was like, I always say the same thing. I'm not, I'm not going to say that. Uh, but this morning as Leah uh, was sharing as we were getting started about just the things that God was speaking to her about the, the first song, pull the, the, the bridge to act justly. Uh, up real quick. I want to I want to draw something out of that. But but anyway, I'm excited um, about what God has for us today. Uh, that's not the one I was thinking of. Anyway, never mind. Cancel that. Thank you, Luke. I got a little tickle in my throat, so I, I apologize in advance if I cough. I want to start out this morning, uh, kind of in a similar fashion that we have recently. Uh, last week we talked specifically about some action steps, about some doing. Um, and, and I appreciate Leah's prayer this morning. I, I want to kind of remind us, we're going to talk today about doing some more stuff. And, and the songs this morning, I love what I'm so excited about is the fact that God is continuing to preach the same message to us and remind us that, that there are things that we do as believers, but those things that we do are not things that we just do because we're supposed to do. Our motivation is what we're experiencing of God. It's not the fact that that we're just supposed to. Today, I titled today's message, Genuine Religion. And I want to kind of, I didn't plan to do this, but I want to kind of define that a little bit this morning as we get going, because I help. I think it's going to help us with our framework for what God has to say. We use the word religion a lot. We'll get to that in a little bit. But genuine means that it's, that it's true, that it's authentic. Like if you're going to buy your wife a really fancy purse, you want to go get the actual name brand, right? Not the knockoff that they sell down the street. I mean, you can buy the knockoff, but she's probably going to know, and it doesn't hold the same value, right? So today as we're talking about genuine religion, and religion is just kind of a, a generic term that explains the, the way in which we go about what we believe. And so today as we're talking about these last two verses in James chapter 1, I want us to understand that what James is calling us to, what God's calling us to, is something that's, that's real. Something that's not just theoretical. Not something that just exists here, but something that changes the way we do life. That's our goal today. So as we talk about action steps, I want us to remember that our motivation is not just because Will said or just because God said, but because we're experiencing something in our life that's changing who we are, and that is motivating us to make changes. These last few messages in this series have been challenging, and my hope is that you've been really internalizing what God's been saying and letting that work in your life and being challenged to change some things about how you live. If you were looking for some relief from those challenges, you're not going to get that today. Sorry, not sorry. Just giving you a little warning. I say that in jest, but I, I hope that we all understand that being challenged is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Remember, the idea is that we are becoming more like him and less like ourselves. And if you haven't experienced it yet, I, you, are not like Jesus. And so in order to be made like him, God's got to make some changes in our lives. And that is always challenging. We keep talking about having true faith and how it develops as we come to know Jesus. And it's through our experiences as we're following him, as we're pursuing him, that we're challenged and that we're changed from our likeness into his. True faith is a result of God's work in our lives, not us trying to do something. 
It's the result of God's redeeming work. It's the result of God doing what he said he was going to do. He said he was going to redeem us and bring us back to himself. And this process that we call faith is the process by which he does that. It's us learning more about who he is and that changing the way that we live life. And we're going to continually be challenged because we're going to continually be redeemed. Until one day when we die and we are joined with him, there is more that needs to be changed in us to make us less like ourselves, less like the world, and more like Jesus. We see this active process in scripture, and we see it in our own lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters. For the last two weeks, we've talked about listening and doing, listening to what God has to say, and then doing what he says. Today, we're going to finish up chapter one with these last two verses, and these two verses are kind of the culmination of this section in chapter one. And James is going to wrap up this thought on listening and doing. And that doesn't mean that we're done with these thoughts. James is going to refer back to this several times through the course of this letter. And we're going to go into deeper details of some specifics that James lists out in these last few verses. Um, We're not going to super deep dive into those today. We'll do that later on in the letter. Today we're going to kind of get an overview of what James is talking about. So let's read these last two verses. James chapter 1 verses 26 through 27. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James this morning is giving us three practical ways to be what I'm calling doers of the word. That's quote unquote if you're listening on the podcast. We'll touch on all three of them today, but the bulk of our time is going to be thinking about the overall message of what James is trying to say. Um, These three examples of being doers that James gives us are, one, controlling our tongue, two, having concern for the helpless, and then three, avoiding worldliness. And the main idea that James is keying on with these three examples is genuine religion that I kind of defined earlier, having this true framework of, of which we do life based on what we believe about God. So let's talk about religion for a moment. At TGP, we use that phrase often, but typically when I use it and when Glenn's used it, we're referring to our own personal experiences with what we call dead religion. And most of us in this room, I think, are familiar with that. That was the way that we used to do life before we came to really understand who Jesus was and the fact that he wanted to speak into our lives. It's the process of just going through the motions. From the outside, our lives looked spiritual, but on the inside, there wasn't a lot happening. And I can't speak for you, but I can speak for my own life that I was discontented with what the Christian life had to offer. I remember sitting in my office many times on staff at a church thinking, there's got to be more to life than this. As I read scripture and then I look at my work in the church and my ministry, it seems like there are things that are missing that are not there. And thankfully, God has opened my eyes to some of those things. But I want us to understand today that that's the very thing that James is addressing in the church. The people that James is writing to grew up in the same kind of experiences that probably you and I had. Experiences of this is how we do church and either not understanding why the things they were doing, why they were being done, or just simply not caring. They're just doing it because that's what you do. They did a lot of religious activities. And the problem with dead religious activity is that it has no ability to make real change in our lives. It's no accident that part of James's teaching on genuine religion deals with 
controlling our tongue, right? And like I said, we're going to dive much deeper into that later, but I want to touch on it this morning. Our words are such powerful tools, and they can either build someone up or tear someone down almost instantly. As I think back through my own experiences, most of the times in my life when the churches I was working in were struggling, it could be traced back to things that people said. I don't think we give enough credit to the power of our words. And I want us to remind us this morning that, that we are created in God's likeness, right? Like he looked at himself and said, I want to make something like me. And God created things with his words, right? Now, I don't have the ability to speak things into existence. That would be pretty awesome if I could, right? But I don't. However, just like God, my words are powerful. And I could say something to anyone in this room and it just tear you down and make you question yourself, make you question your walk with the Lord. Or I could say something to build you up. I want to share a story of my, uh, from my life because I want us to understand, and you probably do, but I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, that there are times in your lives where someone can speak something to you that will forever or for a long time change the trajectory of your life. And I want us to understand that because I want you to understand the value that your words have in other people's lives. Many years ago before I was involved with TGP, God called me to help with the church plant somewhere else. And for at least a year, I prayed over the plant with the pastor, the guy that was planting the church. I was just on staff. And we had hours upon hours of conversations of what the church would be like, what we wanted it to be, and how we would operate. And I was on board with all the things that we had talked about. So I moved to Texas. We began working the plan that we had, we had been talking about for over a year. And after about six months, I began to notice a shift in the way we were doing things. And all of a sudden, things weren't playing out the way that we expected because the way we were going about it was different than the way we had planned. And I began to question things. And it wasn't long after that that the pastor ended up firing me for reasons that weren't even related to my job. And he said some things that were not kind. I'm not going to get into the details of that today. But I want you to understand this, that when it happened, it took me years to get over it. Not because I'm not a tough guy. I can be pretty tough. Because the things that he said cut me to my core and it made me question who I was as a person, who I was as a believer, who I was as a husband, who I was as a father. I don't know if that guy meant to cut me that way, but he did. And I wanted to share that story with you this morning because I want you to understand that when we speak, what we say matters and not just in the moment, but potentially for a long time. What we say can have a major impact on people's lives. And here's what James says. Look at verse 26 again. He's telling us that what we say comes from our heart. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. James has seen this firsthand as he, Jesus, and the other disciples interacted with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders. They saw the disconnect between what they said, how they acted, and who they claimed to be. And the church that James is addressing would have seen the same thing. They would have seen that disconnect. And James reminds them that if they are not pursuing God, but simply going through the motions, their tongue is going to reveal that. 
that religious activity that they've been toiling away at is useless and they have deceived themselves if the heart of it is not motivated by what they're learning about Jesus. They're like the man that we talked about last week that looks in the mirror, walks away, and forgets what they look like. All the Old Testament practices were focused on the outward cleanliness and purity. As we look at the Old Testament, remember when we went through Exodus and God starts lining out all the, all the rituals and all the, you know, the ritual cleanliness and all of that stuff. All that was focused on outward cleanliness. And James is very purposefully using sacrificial language here, but he's redefining it for the church. Look at verse 27 again. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure and undefiled is a reference to the quality of the sacrificial animals that were used in their Jewish religious practices. James is very purposely using this language to bring this imagery to mind. The purity of the sacrifice was important then, and it's still important now. James is showing the church that what happens on the inside matters. All three of these examples that he uses are things that begin inwardly. What we say about people, that starts here. The way we care for other people, that starts here. The condition of our hearts is something that's inter- that is internal. The way we respond to the world around us. James says that if we're pure on the inside, our natural response will be to care for those around us. If we're being made into Jesus' likeness, we're going to see people the way that Jesus sees them. And we're going to respond the way that Jesus responded. James isn't calling out specifically the care of orphans and widows as the only pure things. And I want to, I want to make a point to say that today. He's using these as code words, if you will. For those that have experienced a reversal in life, if you'll remember back in the beginning of June, we talked about the reversals that we experience in life. Those times where things that ought to happen don't, and we feel like the rug's kind of been jerked out from underneath us. We talked about how the rich sometimes become poor and the poor become rich. Orphans and widows are great examples of people who have received an unfair lot in life. God did not intend for children to grow up without parents. But sometimes because we live in a broken world, those things happen. And James is saying in this, in this section that we need to look at the people around us who've experienced those reversals, people who are struggling with life. And when the Holy Spirit reveals those people to us, we need to ask God what he wants us to do. How do we respond to these people that we've, that we've met? I hope that you see that James isn't calling out a specific set of sins in these two verses, but instead he's asking us to evaluate our own faith honestly. James isn't saying true and, and undefiled religion is just orphan care and taking care of widows. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look at your faith. Look at the way you respond to the world around you and use that as a test to see if your faith is true or not. Look, I'll, I'll be honest, evaluating things can be scary. I was talking with Michelle about this day. Actually, she brought it up and I was like, funny thing, we're gonna talk about evaluating stuff today. They're scary, especially if you are the one that is the responsible party. If you put on a party at your house, and you're the one who's in charge of the planning and all of that, and the party gets done, and someone goes to you and says, man, that party was horrible. That's not a a conversation that you want to have, right? That's not going to be a fun one. But it's necessary sometimes. Evaluations can be incredibly 
helpful tools. I don't know if y'all know this or not, if you've ever noticed, but we are constantly evaluating the ministries of our church. And by we, I mean the, the elders and the staff. We're constantly evaluating everything that goes on. If you've served with us on Wednesday nights, you may have noticed or remember that we often ask you questions like, how did things go tonight? Right? And you know why we ask those things? We ask those things because we want to make the next Wednesday night better than the one that we just had. And the only way that can happen is by evaluating what went on that night. And sometimes there are things that happen that are kind of out of left field and they're probably not going to happen again. We don't make big changes about those things. But we do that in all the areas of our lives because we want to make sure, we do that in all areas of ministry, because we want to make sure that we're effective in the call that God's given us to minister to this community, right? And the only way we can do that is to look at what we just did and say, God, did we do this the way that you wanted us to? It's not just me in my brain going, was that right? It's me prayerfully asking the Lord, here's the things that went on, did, went on this week. Did we respond in the right way? Did we move the way that you wanted us to move? The changes that we make in ministry at TGP, whether it's children, youth, worship, life groups, etc., is the direct result of prayerful evaluation. And that's a really good thing. That shouldn't be something that's scary to us. What we're doing here has the potential to make life-altering changes for people. And I, for one, want to make sure that whenever I'm speaking to someone, when I'm standing before you guys, or when I'm hanging out with kids on Wednesday nights, or I'm in a life group, I want to make sure that the things that I say and I do reflect Jesus well, right? And I know that's true about you as well. But we all know that we make mistakes, right? All of us are in that place. And the only way we can ever correct those mistakes is if we address them. This isn't a practice that we should only do in our public ministry, but in every area of our lives. James's intent is for us to look at our own lives and determine if we are experiencing genuine religion, or as we would say, if it's just dead religion. Why are you doing what you're doing? What is your motivation? As you are prayerfully evaluating your own life and your own ministry, do you find yourself just going through the motions, or are you doing it because you love God? And you're doing it in response to that. Over these last two messages, we've talked about talking less, listening more, and then doing. And I asked you guys to be intentional last week about focusing in on what God has been telling you to personally do. And I also asked you to discuss some specific things in your life group last week. The first thing I wanted to ask is, did you do those things? Last week when you left here on Sunday, did you internalize the message that the Lord had for you? And then did you talk about that with your life group? And how did it go? How did those conversations move? Did God move in your relationships and did you join him in that? And I'm asking these questions because until we can honestly answer that we're following God's lead, motivated by love, we are not experiencing genuine religion. If God gives you a task to do and you ignore it, whether it's through me or through your personal time, and you ignore it, you are not experiencing genuine religion. You're just going through the motions. Remember last week, James talked about the man who looks at himself in the mirror and then walks away and forgets who he is? If we're not letting God speak into our lives and evaluate our faith and then make changes as he directs, we are that man. Listen, if that only affected you, that would be one thing. But the reality is, is that's not going to affect just you. It's going to affect all the people in your lives. 
The problem is that when, we, when I don't do what God says, the people around me suffer as a result. That could be from the results of my inaction, words that I say to them, or simply that they don't get to experience God's love in the way that God intended. Have you ever thought about how devastating that can be in a person's life? It'd be like watching somebody drown while you're holding a life jacket standing on the boat. Church, God's given us a call to see people that are suffering and to say, let me help you out of the water here. Don't drown. I think part of the church's problem with inaction stems from an improper understanding of what God has asked believers to do. And we were going to talk about that this morning. It's something that we've talked about before, but we hadn't talked about it in a long time. I want you to answer this out loud, okay? Y'all ready? Everybody pay attention? Answer this out loud. What was the last thing that Jesus asked his followers to do before he ascended into heaven? Close, but no. Make disciples. Who said that? Yeah, okay. Good job, guys. Make disciples. Matthew chapter 28. Let's look at it together. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. I appreciate y'all giving some feedback. That's good. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me and in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word here for disciple appears 261 times in the New Testament, and it has one definition. That's not normal. Typically, if you go back and you look at Greek or Hebrew, there's a lot of different, I get these little pie charts in Lagos, where it shows me all the different ways that that word is used and the different meanings that it can have. Disciple has one meaning. It means to be a follower, a learner, or a pupil. I know that I've brought up this scripture many times before over the last four years, but I don't think that we completely get it yet, and I want, and I want to walk through it real quick. Who was Jesus talking to, or who's talking in this passage? I just gave you the answer. It's Jesus, right? Okay. Y'all answer these out loud. Who was he talking to? The disciples, okay? What did he tell them to do? Make disciples, okay? So who's he talking to? Disciples, okay. Was he talking to just future pastors or church staff? No, who was he talking to? The disciples, okay? And what did he want them to do? Make more disciples, right? Okay, what are you? A disciple, right? Everybody clear on that? And so what is Jesus asking you to do? To make disciples, okay? Wait, whose job is it to make disciples? Is it mine? Yeah, but who else is it? Y'all, okay, okay. Everybody clear? We on the same page? Okay, all right. Is that new information? Okay. So, so here's the real question then. Don't answer this one out loud. Why do we not see more people making disciples? I had to write a paper in my senior year of college for, for a Talitha class, which I loved her classes. She's so fun. It was called um, Philosophy of Religion. And it occurred to me as we were going through, and that just means we're going to talk about how we do ministry and why we do it the way we do it, Okay. And it occurred to me as I was going through that class 
that my whole life, the church, in quotations, inadvertently or occasionally directly taught me that only pastors could do that work. I don't know what your experience was, but that was mine. It was a specialized work that took years of training and study in order to accomplish, to get to a place where you could make a disciple. Raise your hand if that's what you experienced growing up. Anybody? Yeah, that you had to be trained to do that, okay? The biggest problem with that ideology is that's not what Jesus said. These 11 guys that were his disciples, it was originally 12, one of them killed himself. The 11 disciples that were left, who were they? They were just people, right? Yeah, fishermen, tax collectors, guys that were walking alongside of the road. They were nobody special. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't get a lot of training. There's nothing wrong with those things. God calls some people to do that. But I want you to understand today is that just because you haven't been to seminary or even college does not mean that you are not qualified to make a disciple. The other major problem with that is that it seriously limits how many disciples can be made. So Jesus, Son of God, how many disciples did he have? What was that? Twelve. Okay, thanks. Appreciate y'all hanging in there. Had twelve disciples. Okay, so when we're talking about disciples, I'm talking about close friends that he was deeply involved in their life. There were other people that called themselves his disciples that, that kind of followed him. But there were 12 who did a life with him, right? Jesus, Son of God, 12 guys. So why on earth would we expect a pastor or staff to do more than that? Right? How did the church model go from you deeply investing in a few people to one guy or one girl deeply investing in hundreds? That's not the way we saw Jesus do it. And I wrote a paper about this when I was in college. What we see Jesus doing is deeply investing in the lives of a few people and then entrusting them to go do the same. I watched a, a video this week and, and just visualized this with me, but imagine a funnel. Everybody knows what a funnel is, right? It's big at the top, little at the bottom. And the idea of a funnel is that you can put a lot amount of stuff in, you know, like if you ever poured oil in a car and not used a funnel, it gets all over the engine because it's impossible to get that oil in the little hole. So you use a funnel, right? And for years, decades, the church ministry model was a funnel where you put all the church members and potential church members in the top and they slowly, slowly, slowly whittle down until you just got a little drip of people coming out. That's not the model that Jesus used. The model that Jesus used was I'm going to invest in these few people and then those people are going to go invest in other people. I want us to do some quick math here real quick. You want to do some math? Let's do some math. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. I can't listen to you. 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. We'll say 30. There's 30 of us in this room. Okay. Now, now we get to, that was counting, that's math. Now we're going to get to some serious math. Let's just say that all of us in this room deeply invested in two people's lives. How many disciples would we make? 60, okay? Now, how many people do we like to have in a life group on average? About 10, right? It's a good size. We would have to start six new life groups if all of us deeply invested in two people's lives. Do you see the difference in that model? That's just if we only did two. What I want us to understand today is that God has called all of us 
to deeply invest in the lives of other people. So that all this stuff that we sang about this morning, we know that it's better. One day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, right? We know that because we've been in the courts. We know that because we know Jesus. We know what it feels like to be struggling and to say, God, I don't know how to deal with this. And him say, let me show you. And then you get to walk through that. And you experience more about him. And you fall deeper in love with him. And you go, God, that was incredible. Let's do something else. Maybe not as hard as that, but let's do that again. Right? We know that by experience. But are we sharing that with other people? The people that are in our lives that are struggling, that are drowning, that we're watching drown. Are we taking the time to stop and say, can I help you with this? Can I hold you up and tread water for a moment? That's what God has called us to do. What the church has done for years is not made disciples, they've made converts. That's what I was for so many years. I gave my life to Christ when I was, I think, a sixth grader. And it wasn't until I was a junior in high school that I really understood what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus. And you know how that happened? Someone invested in me. I'd gone to church my entire life. I don't remember not going to church. But it wasn't until I was 17 years old that someone took the time to invest deeply in my life to disciple me and for me to understand that there was more to my relationship with God than just saying a prayer and walking down the aisle. And the same is probably true for you. And the same is going to be true for all the people in your life. God has called us to be disciple makers. Church, I think that many of us still hold that old school model of ministry in our minds. That yes, the church is supposed to be a disciple maker, but it's someone else's job, not mine. We're not going to get down into the nitty gritty today of what it means for you personally to be a disciple maker. But I want us to understand that this last year, we spent a whole year studying the book of Hebrews. And what was our tagline for that? Sharing our stories, right? That's where you start. That's where you start. There are people in your lives who you know, who you love, who are struggling in life, and the easiest, best thing that you can do is share your experiences with them. Sometimes that's hard for us to do. And it's, I, I want to reiterate this again, it's not something that we do in our own power. The Holy Spirit's going to prompt it. And you're probably going to be nervous, nervous if you've not done that before. But work through those nerves. Let the power of the Holy Spirit work through you. Share your story. And that's all you got to do. The rest is on the Holy Spirit. Here's what I know. Most of us have stood up here on Sunday mornings and we tell one another about what God's doing in our lives. God is moving and active in your life. And I know that through your testimony. I see it in how you respond to life. Church, we're called to share that with the people that aren't in here today. It's easy to share what God's doing with people who are like-minded. It's harder to share that with people who don't understand yet. But it's the people who don't understand yet who need to hear it the most. Let me ask you this. Don't answer it out loud. But I do want you to discuss this at Life Group. How many people that, that don't know Jesus do you spend meaningful time with each week? People who don't know Jesus, how many of them are you spending meaningful time with each week? 
I'm not asking you to go out and recruit 12 disciples, but you should have at least one. Look back at James with me and consider what James is saying. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What we say is important, and we should be mindful of what comes out of our mouths because people are listening. As we evaluate our faith, looking at it as a return on investment, there's a significant metric that can be found, and here's what I mean by that. What comes out of our mouths reveals what's happening in our hearts. If we believe that we are growing and experiencing genuine faith, does our life reflect that? One of the commentaries points out there's a word in this verse 27, the word and, that isn't in the original Greek context. I'll put, a, put that up there on the screen for me, Anna. This is out of the critical, uh, commentary and critical explanatory on the whole Bible. He says, so close is the connection between active works of mercy, that's where James is talking about taking care of orphans and widows, and the maintenance of a personal unworldliness of spirit, word and deed. So that's where he's talking about um, pure and undefiled religion and keeping oneself unstained from the world. He said those are so closely connected that no connecting word is needed. In the original Greek, that word and, put verse 27 back up there for me, where it says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That word and is not in the Greek text. Because it is understood that those two things can only coexist. He's saying that mercy and personal holiness can only coexist. You cannot have one without the other. James takes the time to use sacrificial language to point out that in the Old Testament, God only accepted a sacrifice if it was unblemished. And James redefines that, what that means for the church. Our outward actions are a direct reflection of our inward purity. Let me say that again. Our outward actions are a direct reflection of our inward purity. And that purity can only come through the work of the Holy Spirit as he works in our daily lives. Just like I talked about at the beginning, the redemption that God does. That's where that happens. James is reminding the church of who they are. James is reminding us today of who we are. I thought about doing this for a while, and God said that today was today. I want you to look with me at... Uh, our distinctive on mission as a TGP church. It's going to be up on the screen, but this is our mission. Leading people to know God. The Gathering Place mission statement is our most significant distinctive. We believe that God created a man to enjoy a personal, intimate relationship with him. The Christian life should be more than just a list of religious things to do. The first way we want to lead people to know God is by introducing them to Jesus as Savior following salvation, we believe that God will also use us to lead believers to know him in a progressively more intimate way. And we promote intimate moments with God where we learn to discern his will, obey it, and get to know him through obedience. Church, that's who we are. That's who we have said we want to be. And the only way we ever get to become that is what's coming next. This is Philippians 3.10. This is in our distinctives, and this is out of the Amplified Version. It says, For my determined purpose is that I may know him, 
that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. Then that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which exerts to other believers, over believers, and that I may so share his suffering as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness to death in the hope. This is who we are. We are a, a group of people, average people, whose desire is to know God more and more every day. And who God has called us to be as a people that while we are learning more about who God is every day, that we are sharing that with the people that we're doing life with. And that doesn't just mean your life group. Right here in our first most dis significant distinctive is what we talked about today. Develop developing a personal relationship with God. Introducing people to Jesus. Discipling those people so that they can learn to know God progressively. And to teach them to hear God's voice and to obey it. Take some time this week to evaluate your personal ministry of disciple making. And take some time as a life group to evaluate your group's disciple making efforts. I want to reiterate one last time as we close. That this has to be motivated by our relationship with God. Not because Will said to do it. If you're moved to action only because I ask you to you're still only experiencing dead religion. And I don't want that for your life. If you find yourself in that place, just have a conversation with God about it. One of the most important things that you can do is when you're feeling whatever it is you're feeling right now, take those feelings to God and say, God, I don't know why I feel the way I feel, but I want you to change it. God's goal and desire for us today is not to walk out of this room covered in guilt and shame. His goal is for all of us to walk out of here with peace and comfort and excitement about sharing who he is. And if you're feeling anything other than peace and excitement, have a conversation with God about why you feel the way that you feel. Because my goal, his goal, is not guilt and shame. His goal and my goal is for you to feel loved and encouraged. Take the time this week to have an honest conversation with God. Church, what what we experience of God is nothing short of amazing. Every Sunday morning when you guys come up and share testimony, I am blown away by the work that God's doing in your life. And people besides the ones in this room need to hear that too. And the only way that's ever going to happen is if we choose to walk in obedience to who God's called us to be. And that's the people who make disciples. Let's pray. God's a super challenging message this morning. It's going to require us to, to really have some hard conversations. Father, I ask that as we are pursuing you, as we're thinking about the people and the person that you've called us to be, God, I ask that you would give us encouragement, that you would give us excitement, that you would help us to experience joy as we're walking in obedience to you. Guys, my heart, my prayer that, that my brothers and sisters in this room would be encouraged this morning. God, it's my, my hope and my prayer that, that what we're experiencing every day in our time with you would motivate us to share that with the people around us who don't know you. God, that's a work that only you can do in us. So Father, this morning as we close in worship, I want to ask that you would let that be a focused time for each of us.
that we can evaluate our personal ministries and then make changes as you lead. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.